Well, as a church, we've been going through the book of Jonah. And today we come to the fourth and final chapter of that book. You might remember how back in chapter one, God called Jonah to go to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh and there to cry out against the city's wickedness. But Jonah did not go. Instead, Jonah hopped on a boat heading to Tarshish. But God chased Jonah down. God sent a giant fish to swallow Jonah. You remember from chapter 2 how Jonah prayed to God from the belly of that giant fish. Well, the fish then spewed Jonah out on dry land. And then in chapter 3, we read of how God again called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and there declare God's message to them. This second time God called Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah did go. And on the streets of Nineveh, he proclaimed, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh, from the king on his throne all the way down to the poorest citizen, even the animals responded to Jonah's message. They wore sackcloth. They fasted. They engaged in these external symbols of an internal change. They repented. They turned from their wickedness and turned towards God and God's purposes for them. And God saw the repentance of the city of Nineveh. And God no longer planned to visit upon them the calamity God had spoken of before. God chose mercy for Nineveh. Well, in today's chapter, we get to hear how the prophet Jonah responds to this news that God would not be bringing calamity to Nineveh, but rather would be showing them mercy as we prepare to hear this scripture reading of the fourth chapter of Jonah by Sarah Cano. Let us pray. Loving and merciful God, we ask that you might illumine our minds and hearts, that the words we hear read and proclaimed might be for us your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east heat, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and it said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left, 
and also many animals? Well, it's been called the most contentious, divisive, and consequential election in United States history. Now, that statement about the 2020 election might be hyperbole. After all, the 1968 battle for the presidency between Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey was certainly contentious, divisive, and consequential. There were passionate and conflicting visions for the future of this country. That year, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And if you've seen the musical Hamilton, you know that the election of 1800 between the Democratic Republican candidate Thomas Jefferson and the Federalist candidate John Adams was quite divisive and had an immense impact. It was later dubbed the Revolution of 1800, that election. And yet, even if 2020 may not be the single most contentious and consequential U.S. election ever, it still has left many of us feeling we are a country divided. Over the past week, people across the nation have been looking at the world, and our nation at least, as blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican. It's been a time when people from both political parties have thought there is we and they, there is us and our enemies. And so today, the first Sunday after the election, it seems an appropriate time to ask this question, how are we to look at those we deem our enemies? How are we to look at those who seem bound and determined to oppose what seems so precious to us? How might we pray? for our enemies? How does God look at those who appear to us to occupy a space on the other side of that battle line when battle lines are drawn? These are the kinds of questions the fourth chapter of Jonah explores. The final chapter of the book of Jonah begs these questions. How might the children of God look upon their enemies? How does God look at those who've been enemies to God's people? And how might God's perspective on our enemies impact our perspective on our enemies? Well, if you wanted to find enemies of God's people back in Jonah's day, Nineveh is right where you would look. Nineveh was the oldest and most populated city in the ancient Assyrian Empire, and Assyria, Lord, did they cause the ancient people of Israel and Judah, Jonah's people, great misery. In 721 BCE, the Assyrian army captured the northern kingdom of Israel and carried away many of its citizens into captivity. Then 20 years later, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked the fortified cities of the kingdom of Judah, and carried many of its citizens away, as depicted in this ancient carving. This, the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem, though they were not able to capture the city. For the people of ancient Israel and Judah, Assyria, and the great city of Nineveh were the enemy of violent and oppressive force. So one can understand why Jonah might have longed to see destruction rain down from heaven upon Nineveh. One can understand why Jonah would not be eager to play a part in some plan for divine mercy when it came to Nineveh. For where was, where was mercy, Jonah might have asked, in 721 BCE? Did Nineveh show mercy to Israel back then? No, not in the least. So why should mercy be shown to the Ninevites now? Let calamity 
fall upon them, Jonah says. Let them be utterly destroyed as righteous retribution for all the harm they've done. Jonah wanted to see a movie, you know, that movie where the villain and the accomplices get utterly annihilated in the end. You can see that kind of movie in many American theaters and certainly on Netflix. I saw a version of that film just last week. I finally checked out the 2016 film, The Magnificent Seven, a remake of the 1960 film of that title, which itself was a remake of the 1954 film, The Seven Samurai. Some stories, they just keep getting told. Well, this film follows a narrative arc so common, you know the ending as soon as the film begins. A villain emerges so wicked and wreaks such havoc on a community, the film practically begs you to crave the villain's elimination. In The Magnificent Seven, the villain is introduced invading a peaceful town, entering their church when people are gathered and telling the people this, If you don't cede to me the rights to your property at a fraction of their worth for my mining interests, my commercial interests, I will destroy each one of you. Then this man, along with his accomplices, torments a child, burns down the church, beats the pastor, and kills several men and women in the town. Well, how do you respond to an enemy like that? You bring in the Magnificent Seven, of course, and utterly annihilate him and his people. But such an ending can sadly lead you to lose sight of the humanity in those villains and his accomplices lying dead on the ground by the film's end. Still, that's the kind of film Jonah wanted to see, a movie like The Magnificent Seven. So one can understand Jonah's rage when he hears of God's plan to show the Ninevites mercy. So what if they repented, Jonah might have said. that doesn't bring back the lives lost, that didn't undo the havoc they'd wreaked upon God's people. I want to see them pay, Jonah says, they are my enemies. And then God does a fascinating thing with Jonah to help him see the world, to help him see his enemies a little differently. God gives Jonah an object lesson. As Jonah sits under a booth looking out on Nineveh, hoping to see its destruction, God sends a bush that provides shade for Jonah's head. This delights the prophet, as depicted here in a third century Roman carving. Jonah's happy in the shade. But then the next day, God sends a worm to destroy the bush, and then God sends a hot wind to beat down on him. Jonah's miserable and says, just kill me now. And Jonah mourns the loss of that precious bush. Then God says to Jonah, don't you now see how I look at Nineveh? You weep for the bush that you did not even create. You feel the weight of its loss. How do you think I would feel about 120,000 people in Nineveh, each of whom was created in my image? How do you think I feel about the animal life that I created and called good? Would I want to see that destroyed by some calamity visited upon Nineveh? Well, that's the question God leaves Jonah and us as the reader with as the story of Jonah draws to a close. Jonah and we don't get that destruction of the enemy we might have craved. Instead, 
we're left with a portrait of a God who is compassionate and merciful, not just towards us, but even towards those we deem our enemies. Now, it's not that God does not care about wickedness, oppression, and injustice. The God we see in the book of Jonah was prepared to have the people of Nineveh receive the dire consequences of their wickedness. The God we see in Jonah calls the prophet to the streets of Nineveh to speak truth to that ancient power and call the city to account for their misdeeds. But when the people of Nineveh, challenged by God, turn from their sin, well, God shows them the kind of mercy God showed Jonah's people back when they had sinned. Now, this is just what Jonah feared God might do, forgive Nineveh. And that's why Jonah initially fled the scene. How could Jonah forget that refrain that shows up again and again in the Hebrew scriptures? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Sometimes we wish God wasn't that way with our enemies, but that is the God of scripture we read time and again. And that same God who shows us love and mercy looks on our enemies with love and mercy. God shows them enraging grace. And God calls people like Jonah and people like us to look at those we deem our enemies with that kind of vision, to see them as God sees them, precious creations from the hand of a loving God. All creation, we're reminded in Jonah, even animal life, even plant life, even ocean life, it's all part of God's creation and dominion. And God calls Jonah, God calls us to look at it all, even our enemies, even the animals, with the kind of compassion with which God sees it all. One of the hardest statements Jesus ever uttered was this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If we are God's children, if we are among those who have acknowledged our sin and turned to God for the forgiveness offered to us freely in Christ, if we are recipients of the lavish grace and goodness of God, if we've been made family with the great communion of saints, it means we care about what God cares about. And the domain of God's grace and compassion includes the 120,000 Ninevites and also many animals. I love that ending of the book of Jonah. And so that becomes our concern too. Oh, the enraging grace of God. Well, this doesn't mean, of course, that we won't be called to confront our enemies. It doesn't mean we won't be speaking truth in the streets like Jonah did, challenging wickedness and falsehood, naming evil as evil. And yet, when we look on even those who have done us harm, when we look on our enemies, God invites us to see what God sees, human beings, fallen and flawed, but still precious in God's sight. I think of what kind of enemy might be the hardest to look upon with that kind of compassion and what comes to my mind is somebody who'd done harm to my family, especially my daughter Lucy. That would be 
a hard person to forgive. And so I'm struck by the story of Jeffrey Schrock and how his faith in Christ allowed him to see another one who had done irreparable harm to his family and see the human being in his enemy. Jeffrey Schrock had been driving his five children to join their mother Carolyn on some errands when Clifford Helms' pickup truck veered into oncoming traffic and collided with Schrock's vehicle. The impact killed all five children, from the oldest, Carmen, age 12, down to Craig, the youngest, age 2. Evidence would later show that Mr. Helm may have been distracted by his phone. He'd spoken to his wife around the time of the accident. Helm claims to have blacked out, but he also confesses that he was racked with guilt for years after that event in just a few minutes, even if unintended. Helm realizes his actions led to the death of five children. Well, one could see how Jeffrey Schrock would look at Clifford Helm and see simply an enemy who had done the unforgivable. One could understand if his wife Carolyn looked on Clifford Helm with that kind of vision. And both would admit there were days when resentment and anger would well up inside them. But they chose to visit Clifford Helm in the hospital. Carolyn is pictured here visiting him. This Mennonite couple got to know Clifford Helm and developed compassion for him. The couple forgave Helm. When Helm was tried by the state for vehicular manslaughter, members of the Schrock family and the Helm family sat together, not on opposing sides. Helm was acquitted, but could never escape the damage his actions had caused. Still, the Helms and Schrocks found a gift in the aftermath of that tragedy. They found a friendship born of that all-too-rare quality these days, forgiveness and compassion towards one's enemy. Well, as you look to the future with after a most contentious election, may you have eyes to see the humanity in even those you deem your enemies. May you see what God sees, and those you may have bitterly opposed, may you see people created in the very image of God and precious in God's sight, as precious as 120,000 people in Nineveh and also many animals. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.